So um, I want to welcome everybody here. Today is November 14th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Great Bear Lake tribe in Treaty 11. My name is Dekots Nagotine Siku. Just so you know, we're hearing whoever's speaking. So it, as long as you're not muted, you're definitely being recorded. Uh, my people wore rabbit skin, so it's been referred to the land of the hair people. Uh, I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Klincho Tene Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many big dog town, named after the Calgary Stampede. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot, Mokinstis, says Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slaving Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. Through my father, I am a daughter of the Mayflower, a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act imposed status card, which is a colonial construct by Canadian policies meant to divide Indigenous peoples' inherent rights. Indigenous Two-Spirit or the Indigenous 2SLGBTQ plus community and Indigenous women are at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder because of colonial trauma, imposed poverty, racism, gendered violence, and land theft. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share what I know as I walk down my red journey, or red road journey, sorry. Uh, as a Dene woman who has attempted to run, campaigned after joining harmful colonial parties, spent money to be at expensive conventions, left my home to travel to those conventions just for my vote, to be uh, on incomplete policies that still allow for incarceration, a denial of justice, a denial of health services, racism, colonial trauma, and genocide of Indigenous and Blacks peoples, I have work to continue to do, reports to advocate for, and attempt to work within these systems meant to harm me and my community. I think of all of this today and hope that we honor the many uh, Indigenous lives lost or incarcerated for the so-called country named Canada. I hope you all see your role in the importance of stopping harm and as a citizen see your role in reconciliation and as a treaty partner. Pride Month should never be one month. It is important to understand that the straight agenda and gendered violence was and is forced on these lands by Christian outsiders. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner in a so-called time of reconciliation. Um, it's also Trans Awareness Week, and I think it's important to um, acknowledge that. And on Sunday, there will be a Trans Day of Remembrance for uh, the general public at uh, community-wise. And for Indigenous people, there will be one in my backyard with a sacred fire. It's important that your land acknowledgements have meaning. I encourage all to introduce themselves with the acknowledgement of their ancestries or their ancestors stories of displacement, and how you perceive your role as a treaty partner, a citizen of Canada, a refugee or other land displacement. So we as Indigenous people know how safe you are to be around. If you don't know how to pronounce your, um, sorry, I'm trying to let people in as they come in late. If you don't know how to pronounce your local Indigenous nation's name, won't say your pronouns, won't say your story of origin, won't acknowledge stolen lands, won't acknowledge economic oppression, or your role in reconciliation, I determine how safe you are to be around for my community, my family, and myself. Understanding land acknowledgements and their importance is Indigenous 101, because it immediately addresses colonialism, oppression dynamics, broken treaties, and lies taught today in Canadian schools nationally. 
That's why settlers and those who call themselves native Calgarians or whatever town you're from, show me that you have no indigenous understanding. Jinti Winti's book, Unreconciled, explains this perfectly as do many other indigenous authored books. Land Back is a movement that could save the planet from climate change created by colonialism, but would also be part of treaty partnership, part of meaningful reconciliation and honoring global initiatives like the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Blackfoot and Leonard Kenny taught me how to pronounce it in Satu Dene. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot and Dene elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. I'm speaking to you on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is a Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border are the Siksika, Danai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley, Chiniki, and Bearspaw Nations of the Stoney, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island, as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. So I um, wanted to start by uh, acknowledging that it is Trans uh, Awareness Week. So I've already seen lots of transphobic information out there. So I'm asking folks to do their due diligence and challenge any transphobia that they see. Uh, these are really important things to be discussing, especially uh, as we talk about this issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit, because we have folks who are Two-Spirit and trans who may not actually have an opportunity to be authentically here, be authentically themselves, and ironically are homeless because of rejection from the Canadian Settler Society. Um, so we are being recorded. Um, I am going to speak first and then I'm going to pause this uh, because it is very clear to me that there are many people in this room that when they speak, it triggers too many people. So I am gonna also ask that folks who are deeply triggered by violence, one, maybe consider stepping away, but two, also consider that you know when people do share their stories, although it may be traumatic to you, it is something that people are sharing to heal. So I am not going to press play after I speak because I have missed many um, opportunities to put my recordings up because afterwards somebody private messages me and says I'm not comfortable with that going up. And I don't have the time and energy to edit out everybody's you know, decision afterwards that they've decided later that they don't want to be recorded. So after I'm done speaking about chapter seven and eight of the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, I will pause it. And only if you give me permission to fully press play, will I, and I am going to ask that everybody else here respect that person's decision that if you're uncomfortable with hearing somebody else's story, that you could please consider excusing yourself. And I'm also going to give the uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women hotline. If you are triggered by these conversations, please call that number. And the other thing is if you're non-Indigenous and you're, you're triggered by these conversations, you, there is 211 in your area that works for you. 
and there is a national suicide prevention program that you can also call some toll-free numbers. So I'm going to put those in the resources as I do with every single podcast. And I'm going to ask that everybody respect that and respect where people are coming from, from their place of healing, because many people are comfortable disclosing very personal things and other people are not comfortable because they're not comfortable in their healing journey yet. So just want to make that super clear. Uh, In this book club, Indigenous people speak first, and then non-Indigenous can speak after. And um, I ask that everybody respect that, because I know we've had folks in the past not respect that. So I'm going to start by um, situation of what, what we've been doing. We've worked very hard on the National Inquiry Report. And uh, this uh, latest one is chapters seven and eight, which basically finishes the first part of the book. And this was a really intensive part here. So this is this is just seven and eight. And I know um, Kathy and I spoke earlier and we were like, that's a lot to read. So I just I wanted to give um, folks who may not uh, may not have read it an opportunity to know what what it is we're talking about. So over 200 pages, and the two chapters are confronting oppression, the right to security. And then chapter eight is confronting oppression, the right to justice. And I know as an indigenous woman talking about the violence that I face every single day, a lot of people do not seem to understand. And if by now, after eight chapters, there's not an understanding of the um, ridiculous amount of oppression and violence we face every single day. Like, I I don't know if the rest of the (laughs) book club are are for other people. So um, one of, so I'm just going to go quickly through the different topics within each. So chapter seven is the introduction, we're not safe, nobody is safe, which I think is really timely to say for Trans Awareness Week, because, um, I really think it's important as cis straight people that we really recognize the amount of uh, safety we have just because we are straight and cis. Um, Now that said, a lot of folks who are transgender get that gendered violence because they are not um, white, male, straight, cis folks. So, which applies to none of us in this Zoom session today, but um, and, and ironically, I don't think it's a coincidence we're talking about violence against Indigenous women that we have no men that come to these uh, discussions at all. And I know all women and all folks who may identify with uh, as transgendered have to deal every single day with male privilege and in a lot of cases, white male privilege. And I think that for folks who don't understand that, I, I encourage them to please work on oppression dynamics. Obviously, we're going to discuss that more in chapter eight. But that bigger picture is that we do have some privilege as straight cis people that folks who are trans do not. We have never had to deal with identity issues in the same way that a trans person has. Uh, we've never had to deal with, um, you know, I, I was listening to see Tiga, Tegan and Sarah, uh, Calgarians who are musicians who have a cute little show out called uh, High School. I haven't watched it yet, but it's based off of the book of their lives. And they're kind of a rock indie pop um, group that both girls who are twins came out as lesbians and went to Western High. And um, 
they spoke uh, in a 13 minute segment quite eloquently of how ridiculous a 40 year old man asking them about their sexuality was when they were teens. Um, and, and just uh, also the assumption that they, how, how are your boyfriends? What are they like until they came out as lesbians? And then to still have adults asking these young, um, you know, early twenties, late teens, their sex life. You know, I, I think as women, we're all very used to uh, being conditioned in the society. And that's why when I talk about land acknowledgements and I talk about how the straight agenda was imposed here, that's that conditioning. And I hope that folks can see that. So anyway, chapter seven, right to security. We're not safe, nobody is safe. Defining human security, pathways to violence, intergenerational trauma and interpersonal violence, pathways to violence, social and economic marginalization, deeper dive, understanding intersectional Métis experiences, Deeper dive, enhancing interjurisdictional cooperation to promote safety. I feel like that is my entire freaking life with police and municipalities and provincial and federal um, pathway to violence, lack of will and insufficient institutional responses. I feel like anyone part of the reconciliation action group can understand the gravity of that because you know, before it was just, and I, I'm saying this to be facetious, I don't feel this way, but I was told this my entire life. You dumb little squaw, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me, the big white saviors, come and fix it for you. And now that these big white uh, saviors have seen, this institution is designed as barriers for everyone. Now it's not this little cute little squaw speaking her little truth. It's bigger than that. This is institutional racism, institutional bar barriers, and this lack of will and insufficient <laughs> institutional responses continue and perpetuate that violence, right? And now everyone gets to see it fully. Um, deeper dive, resource extraction projects and violence against indigenous women. I talk about this a lot when I get asked by uh, fossil fuel industries to talk about this issue. Uh, but that said, I'm usually like tag teaming with somebody else who normally takes the space. And I think that um, as somebody who used to draft wells and pipelines, as somebody who was literally in Fort McMurray when Syncrude and Suncor were burning down Métis' houses so that they could have um, fossil fuel um, extraction. Like this was something that was, I, I didn't understand it. I was still trying to understand if my mom was alive um, after witnessing her being beaten many, many times. Uh, and folks don't understand the gravity of what that is and, and something that's not really discussed in here. And I, I know I didn't get a chance to talk in the inquiry for, as I know right now in the um, hotels and, and the uh, condos here in downtown Calgary, I know for a fact that a lot of these um, companies have a house and it's, it's supposed to be for the executive that comes in from, you know, Texas or Toronto, but what it really is used for is human trafficking and sex work and cocaine use and all those other fun things that are part of Calgary's culture that nobody likes to talk about, but we know is here and ever present. Um, pathways to violence, denying agency and expertise in restoring safety. 
So I've literally had a week of hell. I've had leaders of, of uh, political parties tell me to point blank, it's just your opinion. We want other indigenous voices at the table. So complete marginalization, complete lack of agency. And that's not including uh, bigger picture issues of when I was trying to give birth and I had no agency, that bigger picture of social services coming in to steal our children, that bigger picture of when you're around police, you have no voice. You know, that's that agency that's taken um, as a, you know, ward of the state under the Indian Act, that lack of agency. I hope people understand the gravity of it after this. International human rights instruments and human security uh, conclusion challenging the way it is finding rights to security and I'll go through those findings here and then chapter eight confronting oppression the right to justice uh, safety and justice and peace are just words to us I don't know how many times I've tried to explain this to people and for it to go in one ear not the other defining what justice is for a lot of indigenous people there's a legal system but it's sure, certainly no justice system. Uh, pathways to violence, intergenerational and multi-generational trauma, uh, pathway to violence, social and economic marginalization, deeper dive, criminalization and incarcerating indigenous women, uh, pathway to violence, lack of will and insufficient institutional responses, deeper dive, the sex industry, sexual ex exploitation and human trafficking, deeper dive, the need to reform law reinforcement and to increase safety. <sighs> I could talk for days on this. Pathways to violence, denying agency and expertise in restoring justice, international human rights instruments and principles of justice, conclusion, reinventing the relationship and last the findings of the right to justice. So. I thought uh, the most important part for folks who may only listen to just my part speaking, that it was just really important to go over these last little pieces here about your rights to security, which I thought I had dog-eared, but of course I've lost it over, I don't know, I use my hands when I talk. So the right to security, Indigenous women, girls, and 2SLGBTQ2 plus A, People continue to experience social and economic marginalization and exclusion as a result of colonialism, of racist and sexist government policies. This marginalization and exclusion is the objective of colonial politics of the Canadian state. Can colonial policies violate the social, economic, and political rights of Indigenous women, girls, and 2SLGBTQQIA people and jeopardize their rights to human security and in turn safety. These colonial tools are to our colonial policies are tools of genocide. The Canadian state has caused women, Indigenous women, girls, and 2SLGBTQQIA people to be removed from their homelands and territories and from their families and communities. They experience disproportionate rates, of high rates of poverty and insurmountable barriers to obtain uh, security, housing, education, employment, transportation, and other basic needs. Indigenous children and elderly are especially vulnerable under these circumstances. 
marginalization and exclusion decrease safety and increase the right, rate, risk of violence and often force Indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQQIA people to remain in violent and unsafe situations or end up in violent and unsafe circumstances in attempt to have their basic needs met. Um, I know it's not the same, but when I have to ride public transit, every single time there is a chance of violence. And yet that's just me trying to travel. And ironically, especially in upper class and middle class white suburbia, they're trying to really encourage um, public transit, yet it's not safe for so many people. And yet we have to, we have to utilize it. We don't have choices. Um, the social and economic marginalization compounded by complex and intergenerational trauma also forces many Indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQIA people to resist marginalization to meet their basic survival needs by resorting to the sex industry, remaining in violent relationships, and joining gangs. I would also argue, though, that the brainwashing by the church um, and that spiritual abuse, like I, I speaking for my own family, is why they stay in really toxic, abusive relationships long before they should have ever considered leaving because, and it wasn't until um, hospitalization in some cases that any intervention was done in my, my family. Uh, this further marginalizes and endangers them. Marginalization and trauma are pervasive reasons for the institutionalization of Indigenous women, girls, um, and 2S LGBTQ people within the justice system and in the child welfare system. And I don't know, uh, I haven't got a chance to, to say it, but for folks who actually subscribe to my podcast, they've already heard that this latest episode that went up yesterday is solely on the incarceration of Indigenous people. And uh, the CBC Indigenous reporter that I spoke to, we talked not just about incarceration in the uh, jail system, but also in the child welfare system this is the tool of today of Canada using against our people. Um, the safety of Indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQQIA uh, people cannot be realized without upholding and implementing social, economic, and political rights alongside cultural health and wellness and justice rights. A reliable and consistent livable income for all Indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQ2 plus people is necessary to address the state of crisis related to their well-being and their socioeconomic and safety needs. And I would argue folks with disabilities have been talking about the need for there to be a livable income and many other folks. But because we're at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, nobody will listen because we generally don't vote because we're still busy in survival mode. Um, indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQ plus people experience extreme rates of overcrowding and homelessness, the lack of safe housing, transitional homes, and shelter impacts the health, wellness, and safety of Indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQ people. The housing crisis is a significant contributor to violence. And I know that to be 100% the case. We've had many Indigenous folks that 
are regularly dealing with violence and they're not being adequate places for them to go. So of course they go back into toxic places for the most part. Um, existing social, social and economic services for Indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQ2 people are often plagued by huge gaps in resources and infrastructure. Further, such services are placed in unsafe areas and not culturally appropriate, therefore perpetuating a lack of safety and security. Indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQ2 continue to experience disproportionately low rates of uh, educational achievement high rates of unemployment, employment opportunities and services, as well as resources to promote educational and employment success are urgently needed as a way to combat social and economic marginalization and violence and to support community and individualistic uh, safety. I literally had a conversation with somebody, uh, a man who works for the government of Canada, and we were talking about um, the educational um, RESPs and Canada learning bonds. And I talked about how education is actually part of treaty. And like that was in one ear and out the freaking other, no concept, no concept of MMIW uh, calls to justice, the TRC education component, no concept, no care. You could see it, it just wasn't even on his radar of things that should be on his radar. And yet here we are talking about it as part of the rights to security. And I, I promise you, despite whatever government agency is trying to tell you that they do mandatory training, they do not see their role as treaty partners and they do not see their role as um, the security and safety of indigenous women, girls and um, children. So, and then lastly, I thought I should probably go over the rights for justice and that's on 717 for folks following along this is a big thick book holy trying to get those last pages of a thick book is not fun I just wanted to point out on 720 is a great shot of uh, M MP uh, Leah Gazin, and she's been doing good work for Indigenous people, despite being with the NDP. Okay, finding rights to justice. The Canadian justice system is premised on settler colonial societal, society's values beliefs, laws, and policies. It is a justice system that fails to include Indigenous concepts of justice. And the Canadian justice system has been imposed on Indigenous people and has oppressed and replaced the Indigenous justice systems that served Indigenous communities effectively since time immemorial. And I think the best example of that um, is what we just seen out on Vancouver, where the BMO had called the police and the police had arrested a grandfather and a granddaughter and the community responded by saying, okay, well, we're going to have a ceremony and we expect you to come. And the chief of police came, but the two arresting officers did not. So the chief actually gave back the, the or the um, leader, the chief of the nation gave back to the chief of police 
uh, the gift he, he had brought and said, your, your police needed to be here. And I, I tell people if it was reversed, I'd be in contempt of court if I was expected to show up and I didn't. But that is not the same consequences for those two police officers who refused to show up. So from, from my point of view, like that illustrates this, this point the most. And until Canadians see our justice system as equal value, and until we force people to participate or they go to Canadian jail, then it's just going to continue. Uh, the government of Canada used the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and its um, predecessor, the Northwest Mounted Police, to implement and enforce laws and policies designed to control, assimilate, or eliminate Indigenous peoples. On behalf of the government of Canada, the RCMP ensured the forced relocations of Indigenous communities, removed children from their families and communities to place them in residential schools, enforced laws that prohibited traditional spirituality and ceremonies, enforced the Indian Act governance structures, which I don't agree they should have even said that, it's fascist apartheid, it's not governance. Um, it included the past system at the behest of Indian agents, facilitated the apprehension of, of children during the 60 scoop, and enforced other discriminatory and oppressive legislate legislation and policies. And I would argue that they continue today. So I don't like the concept of this being historical, like this has always been and always continue to be. Uh, the historic role of the RCMP has not changed significantly. The RCMP must still enforce present day discriminatory and oppressive legislation and policies in the areas as child welfare, land and resource disputes. Um, we actually had on the Reconciliation Action Group a comment from Dustin, um, and he said to the effect, like, Guffiston Lake happened under the NDP. We see the Wet'suwet'en today under the NDP and BC. Um, so it doesn't matter what party's in charge. The RCMP will continue to do this. The historic and present day role of the RCMP, the continued racism and sexism by many RCMP officers directed at Indigenous peoples, the high rates of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and 2SLGBTQIA people, and the lack of resolve have caused many Indigenous peoples and communities to lose their trust and confidence in the Canadian justice system, the RCMP, and police services in general. The language used in the Canadian justice system, especially the language used in the criminal code and the criminal uh, justice proceedings minimize the nature and severity of violent offenses and serves to min minimize the responsibility of the offender and the impact of the crime. The Canadian uh, criminal justice system fails to provide justice for Indigenous people, especially missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQIA people. The system's failure to effectively hold accountable those who commit violence against Indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQQIA people means that the violence against Indigenous women, um, girls, and the 2S uh, plus community is met with impunity. The failure of the Canadian justice system to protect 
is well established and documented by the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry of Manitoba, the lack of effective response by the federal government in particular to remedy this failure prevents the fundamental paradigm shift that is imperative to end the genocide. So, um, and then it goes on uh, to victim services programs, legal aid and legal instruments, sentencing. And uh, it talks a bit about the use of the Glad Jew report and sentences are not adequately explained to family. But if you listen to my podcast, we talked about how the Glad Jew reports are actually misused and actually furthers the incarceration of Indigenous peoples. So um, yeah, we have a lot to discuss with these ones. And I wanted to give that context so that from here on in, I'm going to um, only allow people who consent. And I ask those who are not um, speaking to respect their uh, role of consent. So with that, I'm going to hit pause. Well, I'm glad to be here tonight. There is a lot to read. Um, and, uh, and, you know, like you guys have all been coming for a long time. So, you know, most of it, like um, the residential school. I really like the part where Alan Wade described residential schools as prison camps that we euphemistically and wrongly called residential schools. They weren't residences, they weren't schools. For Amy Bombay, a significant part of the harm done through the residential school system is that it fostered aggression and abuse between students and it modeled and normalized abuse while at the same time removing cultural practices that would offer another way of relating. After generations of children experienced this residential school context, children went back to the community with neither traditional skills nor access to dominant group resources. Victims and perpetrators were sent back to the same communities and the effects of trauma and altered social norms also contributed to ongoing cycles that were catalyzed in residential schools. I mean, I know we cover residential schools a lot, but it's, you know, never hurts to repeat the same thing over and over again, right? It's just, it's sad. Um, another thing I found interesting was um, this, when they started talking about the Métis and um, understanding intersectional Métis experiences, you know, I never heard about this St. Madeline, which uh, when I Googled is about um, two thirds of the way on Highway 16 between Saskatoon and Winnipeg. So it's, um, it was a village that, uh, a Métis village that they um, was well established. They had a church, they had everything there. But in 1935, at the height of the Great Depression, uh, the Métis residents found themselves bound up by the confluence of government policies the federal government in Ottawa passed the Prairie Farm Rehabilitation in 1935 to alleviate the impacts of drought for prairie farmers and ranchers. An army of government agricultural scientists descended on the region to plan a response. Their solution was to get, categorize the area as pasture land and have it cleared and reseeded for cattle grazing. So <laughs> I just found that really just blew my mind. Um, this meant that the Métis families would have to leave under the provisions of the Prairie Farm Rehabilitation Act. Those homes would be cleared, could apply for compensation. However, compensation would be paid only if families had kept up with their tax payments. 
and the vast majority were in arrears. And in arrears. In 1938, the residents were evicted, the homes were burned, the church and the school were burned, and some people even lost their dogs as the police shot them. Like, that's just brutal, just brutal. Um, you know, I, I, I'm just learning a lot about the Métis right now, and it's kind of interesting that it's, you know, I don't know, I, I'm just learning. I'm always trying to learn. And then farther along, still in chapter seven, when we talk about um, aging out, child welfare and aging out of care. Um, so Erin Pavan was talking and she says, so aging out of care is really a euphemism for the abrupt termination of all services. Like this aging out, I don't even like this term. I think it's too gentle for what the experience is. It's like being pushed off a cliff, right? Um, and that really resonated with me because I know when I was 18, I was in um, supported independent living. Um, they gave me some money for rent. I didn't have money for food. <laughs> I got something like $8 a week to buy my food with because all the money they gave me had to go to my portion of rent. Um, but when I turned 18, at the end of April, I couldn't even finish school. They wouldn't even support me for one more month so I could finish grade 12. It was just like, I talked to my social worker and she gave me the, the phone number of the closest food bank to me and said, wished me good luck. That was, you know, happy birthday. There you are, 18 years old. Um, totally not equipped to deal with life, having been traumatized my whole childhood. So that was pretty hard. I, I mean, it was really hard on me. I don't know how I didn't end up being on the street and working in the sex trade. I just somehow I, um, well, I do know I found a sugar daddy at the time. So, and thankfully he was a good guy and he didn't hurt me or anything. So, I mean, not all people are that lucky to find a nice guy that'll take care of you. So, um, and then when they're talking about um, interjurisdictional neglect in human trafficking, human trafficking cases, um, I just found it really wild that um, in Canada, human trafficking often occurs between larger urban centers and communities. As of 2016, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police statistics showed that 94% of human trafficking cases were domestic in nature. Further, while statistics, statistics reveal that Indigenous women represent only 4% of the Canadian population in 2016, they compromised nearly 50% of victims of human trafficking and nearly one quarter under the age of 18. Um, I just uh, find that really um, turns my stomach. <laughs> you know, it's like indigenous because of the, the trauma, the oppression, all the, these poor girls that are just stuck. Like I remember living on the streets and, um, you know, turning to prostitution once because I was so hungry, I needed food and I, I got offered money and I took it. 
and I only did it the one time and I never got hurt and I thank God that that worked out for me but I can see how easily it is because you get hungry you're on the streets you get hungry you get dirty you do almost anything to have a shower and some your clothes washed and some food in your stomach you know um Yes, and maintaining status quo and the institutional lack of will um, when it comes to like health services. Um, reports are unanimous in identifying that the lack of health care available to Indigenous populations is due to ongoing discrimination. Further, mental health and addiction issues are often attributed to legacies of colonization and residential schools. Ill health is both a contributing factor to and a result of higher rates of violence against Indigenous women, girls, and LGBTQIA people. Um, recommend, recommendations on this sub-theme are primarily directed towards either provincial and territorial governments on their own or provincial and federal governments together. Interestingly, few recommendations address interjurisdictional duties, issues, sorry, despite the fact that they appear to be a significant hurdle in the provision of timely and sufficient health care to Indigenous populations. To date, it does not appear that TRC recommended studies and progress reports are being published by the federal government, and neither is current spending sufficient to close the health gap. So, like, when they talk about the uh, institutional lack of will. I mean, it's it's not only to stop the abuse of a, of indigenous women and girls. It's also when it comes to our healthcare. Um, and and also another one is the water. You know, like that's another one where there's institutional lack of will. You know, many first patient, first nations persons see water as living and as a form of medicine. Not being able to drink the water from their own community is distressing to some. This represents among, among the violation of all other rights, an important violation to cultural rights. Generally, provincial and territorial governments are responsible for drinking water and wastewater facilities, often operated at the municipal level across the country. However, provincial and territorial governments tend to claim their jurisdiction does not extend to reserves, which fall under federal jurisdiction. At the same time, the federal government has failed regulations that may be applied to reserves in the provincial territorial vacuum. Um, to date, it appears as though the federal government has addressed water issues on a contract by contract basis in individual reserves. Recommendations calling for better interjurisdictional cooperation identify the lack of coordination as a barrier to government efforts to effectively address root causes of violence against Indigenous women and girls. Um, oh yeah, and then one more little paragraph here that goes along with it. Um, well, the 2018 budget marks a shift towards more equitable spending, more work is still required. In addition, and as some of these initiatives make clear, when an issue impacts all Indigenous people, but the promise or measure taken by government is with respect to First Nations, Métis, or Inuit alone, 
it means that the issue is being addressed for only a segment of the indigenous population. So like even when they do make laws or which they don't usually follow anyway, um, it's, it doesn't help everybody. Um, yeah, I don't think I want to talk. So, um, oh yes, and the, and the funding, the piecemeal funding for so many um, organizations that that's such a big problem. Like, I'm not, I don't know a lot of, um, a lot of stuff. So I, I found this interesting and I don't know if anybody can speak on it when I'm done, but um, more generally organizations may be required to work in, within colonial or dominant models that favor an abolitionist rather than a harm reduction approach to addictions, sex work or other strategies, strategies that indigenous women, girls and two-spirit lesbian, gay, BTQQIA people used to cope with experiences of violence and to meet their basic needs. Um, okay, so when the when the when organizations are asking for money for funding all the time, it says, but your your first line item that states you thou must be incorporated. It eliminates First Nations shelters right away. So that was one of the things I that I've had to to I tried my best education to educate funders, and that's changing slowly. So I'm just like. I'm not understanding for why it's why they have to be incorporated and why that is such a barrier because it's you know like I just yeah I I just don't understand so but I know that the piecemeal funding makes it hard because a lot of time people are stuck waiting for services and then all of a sudden their funding is over and that program no longer exists. So after spending all that time waiting for it, it's like, sorry, <laughs> you know, like that's just, it's sad. I mean, it, it needs to be more um, long-term and planned funding, you know? Um, yeah, international human rights instruments and human security. Uh, I just found this one sentence really, I don't know why it touched me so much, but preventing human rights abuses is one feature of ensuring human security, but it is not sufficient condition to guarantee human security for all. Um, yeah, I don't know, I didn't write down what I thought about that. I just underlined it that, okay, and then, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, Article 26, includes the right of every child to benefit from the system of social security and assistance, adding that any benefits the child receives must take into consideration the person who has responsibility for care and maintenance of that child. You know, like, I just don't understand how they're, they can spend so much money giving foster parents kids to take care of but they can't fund the parents to take care of their own kids. They can't help them with their rent, with groceries, with the little bits that they need, but they can give twice or three times that much to foster families. That's just like so maddening, 
you know, just, you know. Okay, confronting oppression, the right to justice. Now there's a lot in here, like a lot that I, like the Gladue reports, um, like I really didn't know about that and, um, and how that, uh, <laughs> that how they deny it so much. I know somewhere it was in Saskatchewan, they said Saskatchewan doesn't have them, but I couldn't find it to, to highlight it. But it, in, um, so here, Diane Sear of National Inquiry told the National Inquiry that shortly after her trial, Sarah received a phone call from a probation officer who was going to be responsible for doing her pre-sentencing report. Sear told the officer that she wanted a Gladue report to which the officer responded, we do not do gladues in Ottawa. Like that's just crazy. Like uh, they passed a law that said that if we have the right to this and yet it's routinely said, we don't do them, sorry. Or you don't look indigenous enough. You know, you got to prove that you are. Um, Kathy, also, can, I, can I just uh, talk to you a little bit about that? So I've actually found out like being the MMIW co-chair and talking to many folks that um, routinely, like there's only like, uh, I want to say like five people in Calgary that do glad you reports and like five, uh, three out of the five are like anti-Indigenous bias people. So when I, um, in my podcast and I talked to this person who uncovered that a lot of the times the Gladue reports that are used are you literally used against Indigenous people to worsen their sentence, I wasn't surprised because the writers that they actually have doing it are anti-Indigenous bigots. And there's only like two people who are, um, you know, our, if not Indigenous, um, our allies. And, and there's not enough funds, like there's um, a small amount of funding for it as well. So mm -hmm. the whole thing is so gross and so colonial and so against our interest. It's no wonder we're having so many problems with these Gladue reports. And, and, and like you said, it's not a national respect anyway. So that's just, just another, you know, insult to the entire you know, concept of it. So just, I wanted to chime in there because I thought it was really important to add to what you were saying there. Yeah, it seems like it's just like another um, feather in their bonnet to say that we cared, we're doing reconciliation kind of thing because, you know, like if they really cared, the Gladue reports, they would, by law, it would be done by indigenous people of the right gender because you don't want a woman being forced to talk to an old white man or whatever, right? You know, so really, if it was going to be a, a, a usable law, it would it would be enforced with the fact that it's done by an indigenous person and of the correct gender. Um, and, and I have highlighted here, many women felt that their histories were used against them for security classifications. So, um, and also the fact that when they are talking to people that are not the right gender, that, that they often, we have also heard from women who have voluntarily omitted parts of their own histories due to feelings of shame and humiliation, which is counterproductive to the entire reason of having a Gladue report. Um, so, you know, like, it, it sounds good on the outside, but really, it, it's not really doing much in, from the sounds of it. Um, and also, it brings to mind the, the fact of that 
mandatory minimum sentencing. Like how can how can they have that and and use Gladue reports? Like that's just like two ends of the spectrum, right? Like like how can they have mandatory minimum sentencing and respect the fact that we're entitled to be sentenced in a more caring and understanding manner? You know, like it's it just, it's impossible. Um, sacred justice is found when the importance of restoring understanding and balance to relationships has been acknowledged. It's, it almost always includes apologies and forgiveness. There's people working together, looking for mutual, mutual benefits for all in their widest circle. So that's some of the things I highlighted in there. Um, sorry, I always feel like I have so much. I, I just say, <laughs> um, oh yeah. So this is, what did we go into? We were, uh, we're seen as the lowest of the low, confronting the sex industry and institutionalized violence. Um, yeah, the fact that while all indigenous women face risks in reaching out to police as a result of experienced violence, risks that include being treated with a presumption of criminality and being implicated, arrested, and charged for violence themselves. Indigenous women involved in sex work also face risks related to complex legislation that criminalizes certain aspects of the sex industry and others. Despite the intention behind Bill C-36, the legislation adopted with the intention of moving away from criminalizing sex workers and instead criminalizing those who purchase sex. Um, it also significantly increases danger and the likelihood of violence by pushing pimps and traffickers even further underground and providing Johns an incentive to not leave any evidence. So I, I found that, um, yeah, that just kind of speaks for itself really. Um, yeah, you know, it's just so sad. Um, it, you know, when, when they go on and they talk about this Dawson Creek, uh, the hearing in Dawson Creek by Diane L. She's talking about in her testimony that they kept referring to her, um, what was it, her sister? Yes, her sister's body. They called her this hooker, that prostitute, this hooker all the time through, through the whole trial. Uh, and that just reminded me so much of um, Cindy Gladue. And then of course, all of a sudden I read on and they start talking about Cindy Gladue and that just, um, that just is so bad. Like, I'm, I'm sure everybody here knows about Cindy Gladue um, and the fact that she died in 2011 and that the guy responsible for killing her was acquitted in 2015. Um, but he was later found guilty finally in February of last year in 2021. So he got 12 and a half years. Um, I'm just going to chime in there because I led both of the Cindy Gladue rallies here. Um, okay. Just to make it very super clear that if it wasn't for 
um, Awutan and the advancement for uh, Aboriginal women doing an intervention status on that, it, it would have died. So it yeah. literally took these organizations who are already understressed, overworked, underfunded, deciding that this is this is it. This is our hill to die on. And, and to do that in order to intervene, in order for there to be more to this before it was let go with him being found not guilty after all of the awful language that they used in that trial. And, um, and again, trigger warning for anybody, like all obviously this entire conversation is very difficult, but I, I was astounded at how many white women were okay with it because they took her sex organs like her pieces of down there and they put them on trial and by doing that they basically said if you're a white woman we can do it to you now too so i thought if there was one time we were going to have solidarity from the white feminism movements it was going to be then but it wasn't the only organization that gave a shit enough to come was shift and they are a part of the hiv community network and they're advocates for sex workers they were the only organization who would come to, uh, and they only came to the first rally. They didn't come to the second one. So just to give like context to how that affected Calgary alone at that time and us trying, the Alberta women in positions in these organizations pushing, it's the only reason why it happened. And it wasn't because of anybody out East, any female women's um, groups that are predominantly white, they did not care. They did not join the fight. They didn't do anything. So I just want to make that super clear too, as another, um, you know, racism in feminism, like it was such a great example of it too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, it just, it's sickening because you know, they, what they found on his computer, right? They found he had searched ripped uteruses or whatever. He was looking at pictures of, of uteruses with, oh, just sick, sick, sick. And I'm glad that he's in jail and I hope that he gets his just desserts in jail. But, um, oh, okay. And then um, later on it, it says, but if we're going to abolish sex work, we need to abolish poverty. We need to abolish homelessness, homelessness, <laughs> and we need to make sure that our nutritional needs are met. Like, you know, like that just brought me right back to when I was a kid on the streets. You know, there was no youth emergency shelter when I was on the streets. There was nothing. There was me and my handout, and I was lucky enough that first went to cigarettes. Any money I got, I buy a pack of smokes and then I would get fries and gravy you know so it's hard when you're on the streets it's hard to to get to stay away from the easy money of prostitution you know like and yeah it's you need you need home you need to end poverty and homelessness and make sure people are fed and and have sufficient shelter and clothes from the elements, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know if I even want to get into this because I don't even understand this when they were talking about the um, the Quebec thing with the, the Baldor, Baldor, um, where that, um, for instance, when questioned about why the 
Surety du Quebec did not order its officers to stop wearing a bracelet that many indigenous peoples and others interpreted as offensive because of its implied support for eight officers who were suspended due to their treatment of indigenous women. Um, Captain Paul Charbonneau observed, blah, 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 blah. But anyway, he goes on to say for police officers, wearing it doesn't mean in any way, in any way that we endorse these allegations. It's more of a show of support for the entire Valdor unit who suffered the repercussions of the events of Valdor because it was difficult for the morale of the police officers. Oh, poor little police officers. They can, you know, they, they've, they're such delicate little flowers, aren't they? You know, like, <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God, that just like, I wrote on my book, you know, the big F you see, you know, like, um, that's my only comment on all that. Oh, and, but I was interested in looking up Brenda Lukey, the um, RCMP commissioner, and she's still RCMP commissioner, I believe, but she's an Edmontonian. I was born and raised in Edmonton, so that was a little bit of something that I like to read. Somebody from this side of the country. Um, okay, so police perspectives on other issues identified in testimony. Uh, I just liked when they uh, they talked about the number one, they have four things that were included in the final report. That waiting period for reporting a missing person that the RCP and various provincial and municipal police who spoke to the National Inquiry were clear that there is no required waiting period to report a missing person. Um, and then number two, the requirement to treat all sudden deaths as suspicious. Number three, informing families of deaths. Number four, fulfilling family requests to visit sites where a loved one passed. I thought those were all um, very good ideas. And I think they said that these were laws. I wish I would have wrote better. But anyway, it says police officers are required to be familiar with and follow these policies. So they, they call these policies. Um, if they fail to do so, they can be subjected to various disciplinary measures. So like, I found those four like very important. Like they're just super important to treat, to treat us all like human beings, you know? Um, I think I'm almost done. One more sticky. Oh, yes, this is just, um, just, just the lack of institutional lack of will. Um, they talk about Bernice and Wilfred, a lack of support from the police and their own community meant that they were left to initiate a search for their daughter completely alone. One that they continue today. They have to go even more they have to go to even more extreme measures to get the attention of the police. At one point, they took human bones they uncovered during their search to the detachment office. So we found these remains of, of these bones and we took them. Well, we went to the RCMP detachment. I said, come over here. We found something. We found these bones that seemed to be a body. That cop didn't even believe us then. He didn't even want to come. So I went back, went back to that area. 
and I took a piece of the knee because it had a bit of cartilage inside of it, right? So maybe there's DNA in there or whatever. So I took it, I put it in a bag and I brought it to them. And only then, after I physically showed them that, then, then they then moved, you know, it was kind of messed up, like not just kind of, that's really messed up, you know? Um, that's just sad. It's just sad that it, um, you have to smack them across the face with a body before you get any help from the RCMP. Um, and that's about all I have highlighted. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Kathy. So for folks who might be experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about today and want to talk, you can call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll-free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you go to hopeforwellness.ca, they even have a text option if that's how you prefer to converse. If related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit, for immediate emotional assistance, you can call 844-413-6649. And for folks who are non-Indigenous, there is usually a functioning 211 in your area or a distress center line, or you can call 833-456-4566. And if you're a 60-scoop person, there's the 60-scoop Indigenous Society of Alberta, at ssisa.ca. The following are two SLGBTQ2 plus crisis supports available in most areas across Canada. You can go to lifevoice.ca for crisis supports. You can go to the Trans Lifeline at 877-330-6366 and the Trevor Project for LGBTQ2 plus youth at 866-844-7386. All right, and with that, I am going to pause it. Um, <coughs> when, um, you know, Kathy mentioned uh, aging out of child welfare and, you know, just there you go and you don't have anything and you can end up on the street. I, I was thinking of um, something that happened several years ago when I got a phone call from someone up north uh, saying their daughter, um, was just being let out of the remand center and she had nothing with her. She was indigenous. Uh, I didn't ask what she was doing down here in Calgary. I didn't ask why she was in the remand center, but the request was, could I please pick her up, get her a bus ticket back up to Peace River and, um, you know, some cash, right? So she could eat on the trip. And at the time I thought, what the hell, if she had just been let out, she had nothing with her. I, I even got her a sweatshirt because she had nothing warm to wear. And um, it's like, are you trying to push her back into the very circumstances that may or may not have led, right? <clears throat> to her being uh, incarcerated to begin with. So that struck me. And then when uh, <coughs> you were, <clears throat> you were talking about the Gladue reports and, and Michelle, you were talking about there are five people in Calgary. I know one indigenous person who laid out money to be trained. You get, you go through training to write these reports. So it's expensive and they haven't been offered any work at all. And so 
I, I, I don't think indigenous people should have to pay to get the training to write the reports, right, to, to do this work. And what it means is non-indigenous people who may or may not have more economic privilege get to do it without understanding what they're doing. So I just wanted to say that. One, one thing that um, ha has struck me reading uh, several of the chapters, like the, the, you know, the one on you know, the right to culture and, and this one on uh, the right to security, uh, the, the introductory chapters, is the, um, the way that, the very way this report is written, I think reflects what, what we've learned about indigenous values and taking a holistic approach and understanding how everything right, is interconnected, that you can't look at violence without also looking at poverty, without looking at racism, et cetera, et cetera. And when you're talking about security and you're talking about justice, you're not talking about things in, in narrow ways, like just <clears throat> being safe from, say, physical harm, right? It, it's much further, it's emotional harm, mental harm, and, and the causes of physical harm are so broad, right? It's not just someone coming up and hitting you, it's going hungry, is not having a home, et cetera, et cetera. And <clears throat> I just, so I think, although in some ways I've, I've known before all these things are connected, this report just does such an excellent job of really driving that home. And, and I think it very much reflects um, those indigenous perspectives around understanding issues and how they're connected. And I think, then I, then I think, oh, wow, it's kind of overwhelming. It's also connected. And I think as a settler, you know, you can take maybe one or two of those things and you, you grab onto an issue and you pull at that. And of course, it's gonna take you to all these other places, but you focus and you pull and, and you keep pulling. And I think it starts, it has the potential of enough people who grab on and pull to unravel the whole thing in terms of the illusions we live under about the so-called democratic value, values and human rights values that underlie this <clears throat> country, right? That we, we call Canada. And I think, I think that's behind the lack of institutional <clears throat> will and responsibility because they don't want this system to unravel. It's just like if you go into an organization to do, an, uh, say any organization, to do real anti-racism organizational change, you call into question everything about how an organization is structured. And people, you know, man, they don't want to change. They like hierarchy. They like having some people in power, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> so I just have so much respect for all of the people who were, were witnesses at the inquiry, who testified at the inquiry, the people who've written it, who put it together. I think everyone should read this report. Uh, it, it's, it's just so fundamental. And when you asked us at the very beginning, you know, you're right, <clears throat> I'm white, but I, I can't come in as a white savior. And I think, um, I, I'm thinking of what uh, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould said yesterday when she was quoting uh, the Dene man who testified at the Berger inquiry. 
and I'm sorry, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like the purpose of life is to become more human. And I think, you know, to become more human is, you want to hope, is to become more humane. And if we're not all working towards that, I think, I, I think you, you be, if, if you turned your back on, all, on any social justice issue or all of them, and I think a lot of people do, it's willful ignorance, I think you lose a part of your soul. You lose a part of, of what it means to exist in this world in relationship to everyone and everything else. So I'll just end it there. But I, I really appreciate you weighing in and talking about that because like, as you said, it, it's a threat. If somebody just grabs on and goes like the reconciliation action group and the reconciliation committees nationally that claim to be working on reconciliation, like if they were really committed to systemic change and everyone did that, I mean, look at our own group. It has a small uh, group, a mighty group, a small group of people in a city of over a million people. So people who claim that they are for reconciliation, yet, you know, they don't do any of that grab and pull, like you're saying. So I'm glad you weighed in on that. And I appreciate that. And then uh, Kathy, if you'd like to unmute yourself. Yeah, I'm sorry. I uh, missed one part. I don't know why I didn't put a sticky there because um, maybe I deliberately forgot to put a sticky there. But when they talk about uh, experience in prison, maintaining violence, um, sexual violence, they, but they talk about strip searches, right? Um, and how strip searches involve the removal or rearrangement of clothing to permit visual inspection of a prisoner's genitals, breasts, or buttocks. However, as many as 30% of strip searches are not done according to policy. A woman is meant to have her top or bottom on at all times during a strip search, but the national inquiry heard that in most instances, incarcerated Indigenous women are completely naked during the strip search. Um, the strip searches are extremely traumatizing for many Indigenous women and are seen as a form of state-sanctioned sexual assault. You know, like, basically, when I was 15, I, I, I know I told this story in another class, but um, I got caught with a little bit of hash at the Edmonton exhibition, Klondike Days. And because I wasn't cooperating and didn't hand it over to them and they found it, they did a strip search on me at 15 years old. I, I'm 15 years old, they stripped me naked with the doors to the trailer wide open so that people out on the exhibition grounds could walk by and see into the room. I did my best to crowd into the corner, but the room was really small. And basically the whole room was visible to people that were walking outside at the Klondike Days exhibition. And I'll never forget that. It was very traumatizing. I knew that they just did it to um, punish me they took it into their own hands to punish me, a 15-year-old child, by strip searching me. Men strip searched me. They got the woman to do the cavity search. They made me bend over and do a cavity search. They finally brought the woman in to do that part. But the men strip searched me totally naked at 15 years old. Like, maybe that's why I forgot to put a sticky on that part. <laughs> but, um, but can yeah. I just chime in and say, you all know my daughter. 
my daughter is that age. So I want you to imagine a bunch of grown men with guns doing that to my daughter. That's what they did to Kathy. Yeah. Yeah. I just uh, wanted to mention that because so many things when I was reading these two chapters just kind of like made me think of my childhood and, and stuff. It was just like, yeah, it was a lot of reading and a lot of memories. And I, I just pray that things change faster than they have been. You know, like the, the rate of change is so damn slow. It's frustrating, you know. Thanks. Thanks, Kathy. Uh, so we're still recording. Is there anybody else who would like to speak? If you don't unmute yourself, Kat, we can't get there. I know. Hey, I'm so sorry. And I always turn red when you record me too. So I'm, I'm going to bear through. Um, yes, everyone. Thank you so much for all you've shared so far. It's been um, really um, touching and heartwarming and really um, challenging too and infuriating. And I don't know how you, you are all not furious all the time with everything that's going on. And um, my heart doctor would agree with you that I am indeed furious all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Rosemary, you said everything brilliantly that I wanted to say that I feel as well. So thank you for your, your, um, your eloquent words. But I would just wanted to also say, if we all lived under the indigenous system of justice, how much better we all would be. It's based on a responsibility to one another collectively and to the land that collective rights are not exactly within the umbrella of the individual rights upon which the Canadian justice system is formed. So it's not a rights-based justice system, it's a responsibility-based justice system, which has a real different approach if you would think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment, people. And I will end there. Thank you, Kat. I appreciate that. It um, is really important to say there were no jails here before colonialism, right? We always seen that as an opportunity to teach. We always seen it as an opportunity to, um, as you said, that, that responsibility piece. So thank you for that. And I'm just going to pause it. When I was reading the Highway of Tears, they made a very poignant report or um, um, thing on language. Most, they kept saying women or young women. These, the, the, the girls that were taken missing and pre presumably dead um, were teenagers. They were 12, 13, 15. Now, if a white girl was taken at that age, it would be a teenager. It would be a child. It wouldn't be a young woman. It language matters. That's how powerful it is. And I think every human has, every human, and like when they're, uh, I can't remember who was talking about saying that, that, that they were a hooker. It doesn't matter. They're still human. Um, language matters. It doesn't, if we just keep putting band-aids on, like having the police do stuff and not looking at root system issues like poverty, like food, access to food, water, shelter, we're not going to get anywhere. And we get 
um, parties come in every four years, oh, I'm gonna do this, that, and then they come up against the RSMP, I'm not changing, or they come up against the inner workings of the government, I'm not changing. They have to do something and start going in, diving deep into the inner workings of the government and make changes if anything is gonna happen. Sorry, that was a little ranty. No, thank you, Shelley. Um, I don't know uh, if other people wanted to chime in. One of our uh, listeners here really talked um, eloquently about a particular book from Los Angeles in an academic sense. Um, and I think it's a good time to bring up in the States that uh, there was a, a law that was protecting uh, Indigenous kids uh, that was put in place before Canadians and Cindy Blackstock has been doing this work and uh, it's actually under threat. So the very lawyer who was for the pipelines was mad that Standing Rock had so much power and now he is attacking the very um, act. So the Indigenous Child Welfare Act, uh, he's attacking that and hoping to overturn it so that uh, Indigenous children will be taken out of their communities and will be raised from non-Indigenous like they do in Canada in the hopes that, that they can avoid another standing rock and be able to exploit the land and uh, take away the Indigenous uh, inherent rights system like they do so well here in Canada. We're such, you know, we here we were for Hitler and then apartheid in South Africa. And now we're doing that great example for the states you know canada when we know how to do genocide with a smile we do it so well so yeah i just want to bring that up as well and uh you know thank uh thank you all for contributing the way you've chosen to contribute